welcome to the Eugene Halliday podcast. Every fortnight we publish a talk from Eugene Halliday's collected works. These talks were recorded in Manchester and Liverpool, commencing in the late 1950s up until his death in 1987. This is episode 10, Applying What We Know. The funny thing about human beings is that they have been collecting information for thousands of years about correct behavior to each other, but they have not yet begun to apply that to any considerable degree. In fact, a bishop in London said a few years ago, after 2,000 years of Christian exaltation, precisely no effect is observable. And I was asked, last night, why we do not apply what we know. We all know, if we are all related together, human beings, that we have the same origin, and yet we have a Beirut, we have African quarrels, we have European quarrels, we have Russia, China, America, Britain, all the other countries busy fighting each other for some material advantage as if they're not going to leave it. Now, apart from one or two mystical cases, some of which are mentioned in the Bible, all the people that have come on earth have died. To the born certainly death, said Buddha. Well, we're in different distances from that death, most of us by age, but not necessarily by car accidents. Every year millions of people are killed by accidents, by wars, by diseases, by starvation and so on. Why have we not yet learned the lesson when we know the lesson already? And this is the subject matter that we're going to discuss tonight. It's fundamentally very, very simple and practically the most difficult thing there is in the universe. Why it is difficult is to do with what we call inertia. Now inertia is the tendency of a thing, once stationary or moving, to remain in that condition unless acted upon by some external force that will change it. The physical definition of inertia, the tendency of a thing or a body to continue either at rest or in motion unless acted upon by some other force. Now this is the big enemy, inertia. The tendency to do what we are doing, either sitting still or moving. And the same thing applies at all levels, physically, there is inertia of the body. If you run fast up to a wall and then decide to stop two inches from it, you don't. Emotionally there is inertia, you have emotional attitudes of love or hate or indifference towards objects and people and other creatures. Mentationally you have thoughts all running along, habitual thoughts, daily thoughts, the same old thoughts, day in, day out, week in, week out, every year thinking roughly the same things about the same things. 
So the three lower ones, the body, the emotions, and the mentations, are very, very inert. Now when we come to the question of the concept, the index finger symbol, the concept has to do with eternal truths. And that also has an inertia. But the inertia of an eternal truth is quite different from the inertia of mentation. Now the inertia of mentation, temporal, time sequence thinking, is nothing but a habit acquired in time. You think in a certain way because you are brought up in a certain type of society. Human beings condition each other as children and they condition each other in their social relations. And this mentational inertia is an externally acquired habit. The habit of disliking people who are of a different denomination in the same religion or of different religions. We have Jews and Christians and Muslims and Hindus, Shintoists, all kinds of beings, simply because they were externally conditioned as children to recite certain ideas as beliefs. Those were established like learning to drive a car, where is the clutch, where is the brake, you learn it and then after a time your foot, your hand automatically goes to those things. And so it is with this mentational process. You acquire ideas. Are you a Catholic? Are you a Protestant? Are you for free Ireland? Or an Ireland bound with Britain and so on? These are all inertias acquired by education from outside. They're mentational. But the other kind of inertia, the conceptual inertia, has to do with elementary propositions. Like a triangle has three sides forever and the square has four, and the pentacle has five, and so on. Now this type of inertia of the conceptual order is totally different from the inertia of the mentational order. In conceptual inertia, what we have is the inertia of eternal truth. The things that are equal to another thing are equal to each other. In that respect, all eternal truths are inertias. And inertia means in work affirming. The RTRT means work. In RTR. There is work in cosmos. And that cosmic work is what we call truth as to its formal aspect. The formal shape of things that are always invariant with the same shape and always will be squares will have four triangles, three sides. Those who remain eternally what they are. Those are conceptual inertias. They are inertias in the mind of the absolute. So we must distinguish between those. Now when we come to volition, symbolized by the thumb, when we come to volition, volition fundamentally is initiative. Now, initiative has no inertia whatever. If you say, but I tend to will the same thing in the same circumstance, that is not the true use of the word will. When you initiate, there is no inertia. Where there is inertia, you have fallen into identification 
either with the eternal concept of truth or a mentational trained reaction given to you by parents and educators or by an emotional attitude or by sheer physical habitual tendency. Now we all know these things are true that we have in but very, very seldom do we actually stand still and then use initiative. Initiative has no inertia. Initiative is free and always now. Nowness is the essential quality of initiative. The problem is, how do we get to initiative if we have fallen into a state of inertia? And you all know this. Most of the major religions have a story about a fall. And the fall is quite a simple proposition. It consists in this, that a free intelligence fabricates a form and then identifies itself with the form and forgets that he made the form. You all know the story of a Greek sculptor who made a very beautiful statue of a woman and then fell in love with it. He forgot that he had made it. In the same way, human beings, individuals, design for themselves a self-image, like Quentin Crisp, and they make this self-image their life pattern, they identify with it, and they then live that pattern life as if they were that pattern. And they forget, I have created the pattern by my will. So the question put to me was, how are we going to remember every day to reposit to ourselves that we are not the slaves of inertia, but that we are spirits of initiative, that we have the power to change immediately, at any point of time, our decision. We don't have to be overridden by education or by emotional attitude. Now the how begins with an H. The others, about what, where, when, why, who, begin with the W. But the how begins with an H. Now you all know that H is the eighth letter of the alphabet and signifies hierarchy of powers. That means that to understand how, we must understand a hierarchy of powers. And in our own being, we have a hierarchy. We think, we feel, we will, we coordinate, we embody, and these are arranged in a hierarchy. If we don't gather ourselves together, then we cannot control ourselves. We are masses of energy. Our body is energy, our emotions are energy, our mentations are energy, our concepts are energy, our volition is immediate energy of initiative. It is all energy. But energy arranges itself in a hierarchy. The moment you get a point of initiative, a sequence follows. That was illustrated very simply while we were away when Zero was feeding some he threw some bread and it fell onto the sand. And seagulls immediately perceived it came down and started gobbling it up. 
but a few feet below us there was a ledge and some of the bread fell on that ledge but the seagulls seeing the bread falling on the sand thought bread is on the sand so they all flew down there and they were all eating up the bread on the sand and when the sand bread had gone they looked discomfort no more bread but the hierarchy of intelligence and power and initiative in no two individuals is equal and at one point I shouted to the seagulls up here, up here and one seagull looked up and he flew up onto the ledge and found the other bread he was the first one to notice that this signal meant <laughs> bread on the ledge he came up and started eating and immediately the other saw he gone Gull means appetite. Gullibility means exposure to internal appetite. So they all followed the first one. And in the history of the human race, there has always been somebody who saw where the bread was on the ledge and have gone up to get it. And in history they're called great men. They're only great. Observe the word eat in great because they saw something to eat which the others had not noticed so in order to begin to apply what we know we have to recognize a hierarchy of powers in ourselves and say top of the list will next the concept next the temporal mentational process next the emotional response and then the body there is a hierarchy. If you forget the others and think only of the body, you react like a physical being. And physical beings collect physical beings. There is a body. And there is a spirit animating that body. And one day, for whatever reason, the spirit departs and there is a body. And as soon as there is a body there, then body men come and start arranging a funeral. Where the body is, there will be somebody dealing with the body who has concentrated on that occupation of dealing with bodies. Uh, some other beings deal in trying to make bodies not die, in trying to make bodies healthy and so on. But all the time, when you're dealing with a physical body from which spirit has totally departed, you're dealing with an inert mass that will not cooperate. But the moment the being is alive or feels, it will respond to some kind of helpful act. Now the rule of the macrocosm-microcosm correspondence is the macrocosm, that is the big cosmos, the big universe, and the little universe, man, are exactly internally matched, point for point. So that whatever rule we find in the external universe, we can find the same rule inside ourselves internally. Our body is a little universe. And it has in it a solar plexus, like the solar system has the sun. And around it, like planets, go chemicals in the circulatory system. To get this hierarchy, we must get first of all a concept 
that there is a hierarchy, that the power of initiative is a real power, that I can choose to bend the finger or not. Now, if I can bend my finger, I can wrinkle my nose, I can wiggle my toes, I can wiggle anything I've got with practice. Now, I'm used to wiggling fingers, but I can wiggle anything whatever. And this is most important to realize. If we can move any part of ourselves by further practice, we can move every part of ourselves. We can move not only the body by muscle contraction, we can move and change emotional attitudes. We can move and change mentational judgments of time's events. We can move concepts which are eternal, but we cannot change those. We cannot change the definition of a square and a triangle. They're called eternal truths because we cannot change them. So when Plato is talking about the numinal world, the world of these conceptual forms, he says this is an unchangeable world. And the time world is a world of changes. Because in time you can get a triangle and the saw and saw out one side of the triangle and bend the others together and make a two-piece. Or you can get a square and saw a piece out of that and make a triangle. Or you can get any number of any things that exist materially and change them. But the ideas do not change. They are eternal truths which cannot change. Now we've all been taught these truths in the major religions of the world. And we have not liked to be taught these truths in part of our being, because these truths are factually restraints upon our activity. When you were a child, and you were told funny things like, be good, don't be bad, you didn't like that teaching, because it imposed on your fundamental spontaneous action. And therefore you set up a guard, when you're quite a little baby, against truth, which conditions action if you identify with it. So there is a war inside the human being. We have heard truths, we have nodded our heads at the truth, formally, but we have not agreed to obey that truth where it impedes our own action and desire. Now we're talking about how to apply what we know. So we have to look at the physical things we do, as the most obvious things, and ask ourselves daily, have we got a physical habit that we can change? And if we can, redesign that habit. Make another habit, just for the practice and the proof that habits in the time world can be changed. But then ask ourselves if we can change the definition of a triangle not to mean three-sided figure, and the answer is no. Yes. You said appears. But is it? Really? You're talking about a concept. You cannot take a concept and spin it in time. 
you can take a piece of wood, make a triangle, and spin the wood in time, and you wear the corners off, then we'll become a circle. If it's an existential material, but not a concept. When you spin a concept in your mind, what are you actually doing? You are imagining different positions of another existential pattern, aren't you? So it is not criticism, is it? It's so very, very easy to confound the mentational level which has to do with time and matter with the eternal form of facts that are unchangeable. Because at one moment we're thinking about time. I have an appointment, I've got to see Santa. He's my friend, I will go to see him. And then the principal comes, but it's raining, I haven't got my hat with me. Should I go out in the rain to see him? Well, he's my friend. And that's a concept. Am I going to get wet for the sake of the concept? Or am I going to readjust myself for the sake of keeping dry? Now, the failure of people with religious beliefs to apply their beliefs has been the clash between temporal mentation and eternal verity. We know what eternal verity is. In principle, we're all nice people when we're not annoyed. And we're all brothers under the skin. Aren't we? Negroes have the same number of chromosomes as white people. They can cross-breed. But mentationally, some people, say the Afrikaans people in general, have been taught that these people are not breedable. And they are. And they made a hate apart. And apart hate. But that is a temporal invention of convenience. Denying the validity of an eternal truth. And we're talking again, and we have to remind ourselves continuously what we're talking about. And we have to do this every day and all day. Some people do what they call taking a meditation course. They go to a meditation class, and they learn a mantra, and they are told, say this for one quarter of an hour a day, and the rest of the time talk drivel. True. Hari Krishna, Hari Ram. Quarter an hour will save your soul. It won't. It'll give you a concept that you're saving your soul. Krishnamurti said, for 50 years he had been lecturing people, there are no spiritual teachers. Guru means spiritual teacher. There are none. Why do you keep coming? And the voice from the audience said, to be reminded. True, valid, quite valid, to be reminded. Because every day time, mentation, attacks us and destroys the memory of our reality. Now we've said this reality fundamentally is very, very simple. In a mantra like Rama, Rama, the meaning of Rama is very simple. Ra means discriminative activity. And Ma means appetible activity. And Ra, Ma means both together. Now, it is said that if you cite the mantra Rama, you should swallow the M. So you don't say Ra, Ma, you say Ram. And swallow the other one. 
between Ra coming out and Ma going in. Because the fundamental of Ma is appetite. More. M-A-W. When you say Ra, you are discriminative. When you say Ma, you are indiscriminative appetite. And if you become aware of that fact, you can know when you are conscious that you are an appetite. And when you are not conscious that you're an appetite, you are an appetite with no consciousness. You'll eat anything. Like babies eat their own excrement and lumps of coal and things. I was once at a zoo with David and Zero and there's a gorilla there. Zero loves gorillas. Wonderful thing is gorillas. So spontaneous and natural. Um, couple of these climbing up a tree. One excreted, looked at a nice delectable piece about so large and proceeded to eat it. And at that moment Zero said, Oh, I didn't know gorillas did that. Now the tendency to want to kiss gorillas vanished at that moment. <laughs> now the gorilla was not right, it was just mine. And he said to that gorilla, uh, are you aware that that is a discarded material for the body called excrement, not edible? If it had received the gift of speech, at that moment he would have said, don't talk rubbish, I can smell the unused protein that's got through. And I'm going to get the best out of it I can before I finally give it up. How would you like to do the same? Now, we're still talking about how to apply what we know. We're all nice people. We're all blood brothers. We're all of one origin. And that origin is spirit, intelligent power. That's all we are. So we don't need to fight. We merely need to remember that we are all the same being. Does the right hand fight the nose often? Not with most people. Shalaiapim once knocked himself out for singing a top note crack. And he had a good reason for that. He was trying to teach his nervous system by aversion therapy not to sing flat. Now we have to fight. It's called the good fight. To fight to remember that we are already absolute. There is no question here of having to realize one's relation with the absolute. The relation of yourself with the absolute is self-relation. You are the absolute, disguise. How do you feel if you believe that's true? We are all modalities of infinite sentient power. That's what we are. But if we are, does our behavior coincide with it? Why not? Because we forget. We forget our absoluteness because we get caught in mentation. Why do we get caught in that? Because of pleasures and pains. Why do we get those? Because we've got focus on the body. How are we going to remember? Now we have things called symbols. The word symbol is symbo. Seed, will. The seed of will. Every symbol is a seed of a will. That means it can grow and become free volition. If you think about it, S-Y-M, reverse it, M-Y-S, that's a kind of mystery. 
because in the seed, in the sin, there is a mystery. You can't see an oak tree in an acorn, can you? I was sitting one August in the garden in the country and flying about with seeds all over the place. You could not see what they would become. And some pods were turning inside out and throwing them about and they were cracking. Very hot. And each one potentially could become a tall plant and make flowers and throw them about. But you could not see that in the seed. And when you get hold of a seed and take it to pieces with a little knife looking for the mysterious flower, it is not there. No amount of cutting of seeds or human brains will disclose the secret, the mystery of the sin, of the seed. There is a will hidden in every seed. Now once from time long, long ago, there was none of what we call organized language as we now know it. That is language made workable between people and within the individual for self-analysis. There was not. He simply grunted. He met another fellow going through the Now it's very difficult to produce a metaphysical proposition <laughs> like that. But there is an urge, an appetitive urge, to create ever more and more efficiency. You said how, now you said why, which one down how? Well, how means a man of that by, doesn't it? The answer is by self-precipitation of the field of the infinite. Now, let's define a field. A field is the zone of an influence of a force, right? You got that? Field is the zone of influence of a force. I imagine an infinitely extended field. A zone of influence which is infinite. Now, how is it going to encapsulate? There's only one possibility. It must move inwards. Doesn't it? If it goes out, it won't encapsulate, will it? No. So we have two functions. One called gathering and the other called scattering. If you go outwards, disseminating, you throw your seeds that way, you lose them. If you focus and bring them to a point, you gather them and they can begin by your inner concentration to germinate. Germination. When you see, you do your mung beans and other things. When you get some dried beans and put them in water and wait a bit, the little shoot comes up. Where does it come from? Outside or inside? It comes from inside. But does it? Because in fact, what you're calling inside is the center of an infinite field transcending absolutely that little seed. It's inside out, outside in. The field itself has no inner or outer. The concept inner and outer belongs in the time-matter thinking process. 
you must encapsulate that is your circle or the sphere before you can talk about inner or outer. If there is no encapsulation, there is no inner and no outer. So before encapsulation, inner outer must be used simultaneously or not at all. And we are being carried away by mentation, by desire, by body condition. And we have to remind ourselves these are not the causative forces, they are inferior forces. The causative forces in the will. Now we go back. How? How means by what manner of procedure? Why means for what psychological inherent reason? And how means what mechanical procedure shall we use to retain this condition? The answer is by remembering. Remember. We are members of an infinite continuum of sentient power. The loss is called the absolute. In India they call it Brahman. The infinitely extended sentient power. We have to remember that. We are it. Aham, I, Brahman. That extended power is here. Intended. This is intention that is extended. We are all points of intention in an extension. With extension posits intention. And intention fulfills the purpose of extension. There are those who drive inwards to ascend to drive outwards. The drive inwards to individuation is simultaneous with the drive outwards to transcendence of the limitation. Individuation is limitation. We individuate to be different and then we express ourselves to join in with the other differences. Now by means of a symbol we can remind ourselves more efficiently and more conveniently than by any other way. I was talking to a Masonic friend of mine last week. He wasn't very well. And I said to him, do you do your Ashla exercise? And he looked at me as he never heard of it, so I reminded him. Think of yourself as a cube. Now sit inside the cube and put a dot there. Call that dot your essential individuation. Oh, that's a good idea. Now think there's a surface above me, call it power superior. There's a surface below me, power inferior. There are to my right, my developed talent, and to the left, my undeveloped talent. And in front of me, my future, and behind me, my past. I'm sitting in the middle of this cube with six faces. The word six is on the same base as the word existence. To exist is to stand out, and to stand out is to be six-faced. You do have powers above you. You do have powers below you. You do have talents developed and you have deficiencies not yet developed and you have future and past and you're right in the middle of these six so you're the seventh God rests you on the seventh day you rest on the point of your individuation not on the point of your empirical ego because that is not in the center and you know that when you 
drawn a circle to represent your being, your skin surface, and the stimulus comes from outside, a response comes from centre and joins the external stimulus, and there's a little rotation, and that is the ground of your egotism. That thing is peripheral. Your ego is a concept from outside. It's halfway between the innermost true self and the outer world. When the innermost true self and the outer world impinge, they spin and make an ego. That egoic structure is empirical, mentational, temporal, and on the way to materialization. It has no power whatever of itself. All the power that appears to be in it is from center. It is the interaction. It's like the Freudian self between the id power, sexual, and the super-ego moral power. And here is myself in the middle, jammed. But I've got no egoic self except the interaction of a world precipitated from infinity reacting with infinity at center. Now by means of this cube I can sit inside it all day or I can simplify it like you would uh, empirically make the cube and then spin it and wait long enough and all the corners will wear off and you'll have a sphere. So to represent this sphere just draw a circle on your paper and put a dot in the middle. And the dot in the middle write I. And do a little drawing of an eye, an observer, in the middle. And that is I. That is the letter I. Now the O around that I is the peripheral interest of the I. It's as far as that I has bothered to interest itself. Your interests go out from you into infinity to a distance determined by your self-definition. You define yourself. And you define how far your definition will become effective. Other people are doing the same thing. Now you are precipitating your world without knowing it. You think there is a world and you go about looking, I must understand the world. That's exactly the opposite of what you want to be doing. What you have to do is understand you. Why? For what reason are you precipitating precisely this kind of world? This kind of world which you precipitate is an egoic world. Why are you making it this shape and not that shape? You have a motive in you. There's a great non-dualistic rule. If you get into trouble, don't bother about the trouble. Bother about you. Say, what am I doing? What is my appetite in this situation? It has led me, I'm thinking, into the position where I have to think. The Ma has led Ra. Ma-Ra means death. Rama means wake up and live. When the ancients made mantras like that, they made them on purpose, quite deliberately. The whole of non-dualism is in four words. Those words are Deha, D-E-H-A, 
N-A-M-A, Nama. J-O-H-A-N, Koan. So we have, put an H in the Nama, the hierarchy, Naham, and we have named ourselves. Nama means name. Aham means I. We say Naham. I have named myself. Before that, I divided myself, Deham, from the infinite to give myself a little elbow room. I must have elbow room if I'm going to do something. So the first word said by the absolute in the Hindu system of thought was boom. Never be space, B-H-U. Make space, elbow room. They are divine from the infinite. I'm buzzing myself. Then Naham, name myself. Then Koham, gather myself. Then Soham, after all it was only myself. I divided myself from my absoluteness. I named myself as separate. I gathered myself together to the best of my ability. And then if I complete myself gathering together, what do I find? Nothing. Except myself. The divider, the namer, the gatherer, myself. So the whole of the highest philosophy that's ever been written on earth is contained in four words. And those words are based on one word, aham, I. I imagine that you never ever in the whole of your existence have or ever will know anything other than you modernizing you. Can you see the truth of that? Never have you ever known anything other than you. And the modality is you with your appetite of imposed on you. Now why should I go looking for enlightenment elsewhere? It's inside. That's what Krishnamurti meant when he said, there aren't any gurus. You are the hidden guru. Find it from the inside. It's you. You are the self-determined. You are the naughty little boy that stole the ice cream. You did it. But who called it stealing except somebody else who wanted the ice cream? We're living in a world where definition, division, has been made by interested appetites. And then these interested appetites have defined situations and put uh, trespassers will be prosecuted. Or private, keep out. Beware of the guard dog. I know a guard dog with only three legs. I think Ken knows the same dog, actually. Now, we have to remember, and we cannot remember without a symbol. Why? Now, a symbol condenses fantastical histories of thought. Look at the word God. Three little letters. G-O-D. Its meaning is consolidated potential 
self-delivery. First it consolidates itself, the absolute, and in so doing makes itself into a closure, a seed. That's why the Hebrew Samach takes the place of a letter O in English. It's really a hidden secret hierarchy in a seed. And then if you divide it, you become an oak tree or anything else you care to mention. A god is a being who is totally self-precipitating, totally self-concealing, totally self-developing. Anyone that can do that is worthy of the name God. And that's why Jesus said, you're all gods. The trouble is you're what is called damn clotish type gods. You don't know that you're God. Why not? Because you haven't been told. You've been told that you are not. Keep that God far away over there and don't you get the idea you're God. That's a heresy. But you are God. Because absolutely there isn't anything else but God. Where you are, as you are, you are God being you. Does that mean you can do anything stupid you like? No, it does not, because you can't even think of all the stupidities that you might do because of inertia. Inertia is a terrible enemy. Now, by understanding the nature of a symbol, you can remind yourself economically, daily. The cross in the circle is called the master symbol of all symbols. In all religions we find it appearing and reappearing over and over again. In Buddhism it appears as a wheel. And you just cross it like that. And then you say, well, this way is the George Cross. And it means balanced power. But if I turn it like that, I make an X in the circle. And that means rotatory powers. And the George Cross means eternal numinal truth that cannot be changed. And the one with the Andrew cross, like an X in it, means the same truth now spinning, creating time. So the two crosses together, one above the other, George there and Andrew there, symbolize eternity and time. And when we get a cross in a circle and understand its meaning, we have saved many, many, many fat volumes of philosophy and reduced it to one simple symbol. Now the circle meant woman. And I do not mean terrestrial female on earth. I mean the principle absolute of total receptivity. That's called the woman. Sophia. Absolute wisdom is there. Total receptivity. You draw a circle on the paper and you think this means woman. But not merely the woman on earth. But the cosmic principle of receptivity. And then we draw the cross and say this means man. You know, the cross and crutch and the, the genital organ of the time, matter man, are all symbolized with that little cross. But it doesn't simply mean the appendage of flesh on the time, matter body. It means the principle of initiative. When you make that cross, you draw horizontal and drive a vertical through. The horizontal is the principle of passivity and the vertical is the principle of activity, initiative, decision. And they come into being simultaneously. And that means that the male 
symbol, a vertical laid down horizontal, coming to be simultaneously is a hermaphrodite. Now that's a very cunning piece of thought. You find it in the Hebrew name of God, for which Jews would substitute Adonai, Lord. Four letters which mean he who, he who. The vertical is male and the horizontal is female. But they're inside the circle which is female. So it means that the cross symbolizes infinite, absolute, true form. And it's posited itself as a world with a limit, the circle around it. And that is called the divine hermaphrodite. The heavenly Sophia, the Messiah, the double-poled will thought. The appetitable drive is the circle and the cross is the form. Now, how many fat books could we write using nothing except that cross in a circle? Actually, an infinity of books we could write. And all the books that have ever been written on philosophy are commentaries on that one symbol. Now we can say, oh well don't let on. We'll disguise it, take the cross out of the circle and put it underneath. And that makes the sign of Venus. And let's pretend that uh, the meaning is different. And then we can fool some other people into thinking that we don't know the thing they know. So we're all going about concealing our intent. You know what our intent is? Fulfillment of self-appetite. And we're all going about secretly doing it, feeling horrible. And amazingly thinking other people are not doing it. Everybody else is decent. I'm the only criminal. How do you feel about that? We're all going about, shot through and through, in fundamental, appetible, sentient power absolute. And we have a formal way of disguising it. I'm not a circle, I'm not a void, I'm not pure receptivity. I have a form, a cross, an identity which you must recognize. Peter, haven't you got a business? Is it you that goes there to see if it's okay or another fellow of another name? And if another fellow went not of your name and started ordering the girls about, how would you feel? Please? Why not? It's just another modality of the absolute. And supposing the man were afflicted with a terrible disease called absolute honesty. And he came, and he went there before you did, and he started working very, very hard. He got all the girls working far more efficiently than you do. That would be okay, and give you the money. And you would forgive him. Such forgiveness. I'm saying there is no other kind of forgiveness in the whole universe. People pretend there is, but there isn't. Now, by means of a symbol, we can remind ourselves, just a little line like that. You can put it on your forehead if you like that. Whenever you look at anybody, look through your symbol. They can feel it, you know, if you want to see up to it. You're doing something unusual. And he's looking at me through a symbol. 
And I'll tell you this, there was never a great man on earth from Hercules or anybody else that wasn't doing precisely that. And it was that that made him what was called great. He never forgot his symbol. Right? Now, what we need is a super symbol. We've got one across in a circle. And then we need some other symbols which are derived from it. Shall I draw some? If someone's stolen all my lovely pens, who is it? Which criminal is it? Maybe it was an absent-minded helper who stole my packet of pens. I'm left with only one. What colour is it? Now Heraclitus said, all is fire. Red symbolizes fire. That is a primary symbol. It means all and nothing. Zero. But inside it, where I haven't yet drawn, is the same as the outside where I haven't yet drawn. So the inside and the outside are identical. Now, supposing that is precipitated by an active will at right angles to this screen. And we have to account, how did it get there? Some being will to do it. Now, the original circle that encapsulated the universe was produced in exactly the same way. Some sentient power willed to make a circle, like that, a sphere. This is two-dimensional, so it's a circle. And there is a primary symbol of encapsulation. When you look at it, you can't help feeling that it means inside-outside, inclusion-exclusion. There is something inside there, and there is an infinite beyond. What is enclosed is finite, and what is excluded from the enclosure is infinite. And we want to make this into a super symbol. So, let's think about it. Pamela, before I drew it, do you know I drew it round an imaginary dot in the middle? Didn't I control the circle by having a dot there, keeping the same distance away roughly? The eye. The observer positive himself first and then ran out himself. So I'm going to put a dot there in the middle and that's the eye. And when I put that dot in there, can you immediately see that your mind begins to change? You have a symbol there and the symbol says there's exclusion of infinity, inclusion of infinity and there is a point of reference in the centre and between that centre and that privity that periviti, I said, the V needs to develop. There is going to be developed a relationship between the central point of my precipitate individuality and the environing circle. So that circle now indicates the limits of my environment. But that dot symbolizes me. That is used in astronomy for the symbol of the sun. Because there is the sun and there is the orbit of a tendent planet.
and it says hierarchy. It says wherever there is a center, something is going around it. And the center precipitated the circle. And that was in my mind before I drew the circle. Now I want to represent activity and passivity, so I draw a vertical there and horizontal. And I draw my primordial wheel. That's the great wheel of fortune. Would you believe there's a wheel of fortune? Doesn't fortune mean strength in unity? Fortune, strength in unity. Now, I now have a circle quartered. When we quartered a circle, we call it a mandala. Now, I said we can start with this master symbol and draw other symbols out of it. So I will do that. I'll take the circle and I'll take the cross and put it underneath. And that's Venus. And I will take the same circle and I will put the line above it like that. But remember that when I drew this on a clay tablet thousands of years ago and then dropped my tablet and it broke and there was on one bit that and on the other bit that I didn't know whether it wasn't the same symbol. So I modified this one like that and called it Mars. That's merely a differentiator from the Venus. The Mars means war and the Venus means love. So I now have out of my original thing two other things. One meaning love and the other meaning war. And they're derived from my original symbol. So I now want two other symbols. I'll take the same thing and I'll put a cross above it like that. But this time I will divide the circle in half and then I'll make what is called a cursive that is a rapidly written form of the same thing and I will say here is my cross and here is my half circle and then I will pair this off with another one here is my half circle and there is my cross we've now written Saturn and Jupiter haven't we? and we've derived them from the master symbol but we're not doing too badly are we? all we're doing is breaking down the mandala into its constituent implications and now we are going to go further we've got the circle which we had and the dot and that's the sun and then we'll take the circle and we'll shadow it like this it's now become the moon and then for the economy sake don't bother wasting your time drawing the shady part just draw the crescent we've now got a pair a pair and another pair three pairs so what we want now is a symbol to mix these together and this symbol is a half circle that's this one and the cross like that and we could either put the O down there or what is more convenient for cursive work we can do that that's Mercury now Mercury is the only unpaired one 
we have now a master symbol that tells us exactly how to conduct our lives. The first symbol says, remember this, this is a master symbol. All beings have periphery. All beings are bound. To be is to be bound. The letter bait, the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet, means a house, a dwelling, an encapsulation. You are bound in if you exist. All beings have a certain amount of initiative, free energy, the vertical, and all beings are passive or receptive to blows from other beings, similarly constituted. And therefore we abstract those and say we'll have a sign for lovingness, and a sign for anti-love, making war, a sign for possessive greed, and a sign for open-handed generosity, and a sign for radiant giving of light and information to people, constant, and a sign for variability or phasicity, and a sign for all of them together. Now we can arrange these by drawing ourselves a circle around this. We cut the circle like this. And we'll have Jupiter up there, and Saturn there, we'll have the Sun there, and the Moon there, and we'll have Venus there. Mars there. And we'll put to remind us that the whole thing is Mercury. We've now extended our master symbol. And it says that if there is war, it's because somebody loves something and he's trying to get hold of it. And if there is love, the person that's doing the loving will fight to defend the thing it loves. And if there is radiant, shining, constant, uniform illumination, there will be periodicity because people can't stand being in the light all the time. And if there is open-handed generosity, everything will disperse to infinity, so there must be a possessive, saturnine drab to stop total dispersal. And if there is grabbing and greed, that greed is in order to be open-handedly generous. Like the multimillionaire said recently when questioned about why he got so much money gathered together by such methods, and he said, in order to be able to create charitable institutions and be generous thereto. And we cannot do anything without doing both of the opposite. And all of them are mixed up continuously by this mercurial spin. So when we look at our master symbol, is it not obvious that we can remind ourselves of anything whatever that we may do? Can you see that? There is nothing that we haven't covered in those symbols. 
if you take the half circle and then reflex it the other way, that's the letter S. Serpent. And the serpent goes this way and then that way. This way and that way. It means it will go one way and then it will reflex and go another way to fool you. There is no thought, no feeling, no will, no love, no hate that is not contained in that master symbol. If you go to Jersey for your holidays, you find it chiseled all over the paving stones. Every step you take, you're treading on it. I never found anybody there that could tell me who did it. But they're there. Somebody spent an awful lot of time chiseling crosses and circles. It's simply a mnemonic. Now, if you don't remind yourself, you cannot control yourself. You are, you are furnished with the concepts that you acquired before you died. Those ideas that you embrace before you died are your heaven or hell, according to their nature. You furnish yourself in life with the ideas to which you adhere. That's your mental furniture. Matter is only energy. Ideas are energies. A formed idea is a symbol. If you have an idea in your head at the point of death and you hang on to that idea, you are the embodied idea. And your wisdom is the wisdom of the thing to which you have brought yourself into identification. Yeah? Can you remember? How? By what method? The method is presenting itself as a symbol. How means by what method? The method is you present yourself as a symbol. Why do you think they give extreme unction to a dying person? It's to remind him that he's a dying person and give him a symbol to hang on to. What is the Tibetan Book of the Dead about? Or the Egyptian Book of the Dead? It's nothing but symbols to remind you at the point of death. What we have to do is find the master concept and work on that one so that from that one we can do all the others like rabbits out of hat. And then if we get only one concept we are saved absolutely. And what is that supreme concept that guarantees absolute salvation. The concept that you are the mysterious self that you are looking for. People say low here and low there. And the kingdom of heaven is you. What are you looking for? You're looking for you. And you've been misdirected by miseducation. You're looking outside for something. But you're looking for you. Do you know all power is inside you to precipitate anything, whatever that you will to do. But it's inside. If you go off to Himberado, go to Patsy, or somewhere else, to consult a solicitor about what to do, he won't tell you to look at you. You rush off to the law books. 
in the precedence. And it involves in a long, long expense. A total waste. Because the real solution of power and intelligence is you knowing you. There is no other guru. Only you on the inside looking at you about your motive. You are Rama. You know, Rama is God incarnate. You are Ra, you are discriminative intelligence, you are Ma, you are appetite. Do you know that your appetite could be exactly coincident with your discriminative intelligence? Or do you sometimes think that your appetite is a nuisance? Or do you sometimes think your intelligence is a nuisance? They're interfering with your membership of the Dinosaur Club. These two are always at war in time, but they're not at war in eternity. Now we have to use that master symbol in order to remember. And if we put it on a postcard and put it on the desk or in the handbag where we can see it, and bother to look at it, and this is the hard bit, and when you look at it, recognize it, and say, Oh, that's that symbol that's supposed to remind me. You tell me, what is it? Why did I put that in my bag? So you turn to the blessed wife who is embodied Sophia and say, what was this card in my wallet? Did you put it there to remind you, dear, of your intelligence? Oh, that's it. Thank you, darling. The fact is that we are surrounded by symbols that mean absolute salvation. And we know them. We don't say it. We don't repeat it. We don't repeat the mantra. We don't say this sign means me. I'm the encapsulated one. I'm the one of initiative and receptivity. A very good way of keeping vampires out of that way. Because you know vampires can't get you unless you invite them in. You know, you midnight horror films, don't you? No vampire ever seduced a maiden without her thinking, I wonder what it would be like. That opens the door. Compassion. For vampires. You mean don't stick stakes in their heart. A pint of what? What deadly concoction you got at the back of your mind? You're trying to drug vampires into not being vampires, aren't you? You're an undisguised do-gooder when you say that. That's one of the biggest poisons in the world. Because it's not fair on vampires. You know that a fish that go for a ride by sticking themselves on sharks and so on, and they go for a ride thousands of miles. If you said to them, you know, don't do that. You're imposing on Brother Shark. He said, does he know? Of course he does, because when he gets near a uh, shallow place with a rock, he tries to scrape you off. And the sacrifice says, yeah, but I'll leave then until he's finished and I go back. And would you believe this? It is said in the very highest philosophies there is no good and there is no evil but relatively to somebody making a definition. You like to think you're a nice fellow who would do good to a vampire. But really you're trying to drug that vampire. 
if you're not sucking your blood, you'll give him a pint of tetris. And I hope he won't go on your blood. I can assure you, all the vampires I've ever met know the difference between beer and blood. And money and backy. And women and song. Otherwise they're not fit to be vampires. This is a terrible heresy, this attempt to identify as a Jew Buddha who simply wants to reform all the enemies and make them into friends. So he can have his own way. And remove comfort. That's Nirvana. That's Pranaya. That's absolute quiescence. That's non-existence. That's no world. How do you feel about that? You still want to give the vampire a drink? Or would you rather wake up? And don't call for vampire's propaganda. Hmm? What do you think? You're nodding, so you're agreeing. You think so? Which one? Mentationally? Or conceptually? Right, we've got a master symbol, we have to use it. And not just ten minutes a day, but all day, all the time we're awake, and if possible extend it into sleep, we have to remember that we are the absolute ourselves, modalized in the specific way of our existence. Every good is an evil in another place. Every evil is a good. The idea that uh, goods have to kill evils and get rid of them is utter rubbish. We have to go back. We're talking about how to turn theoretical, intelligent knowledge into activity so that we don't behave stupidly. We're not one minute greedy and grabbing and the next minute sloppily generous to compensate and quieten our conscience. We're not one minute making love and the next making war. We're not one minute shining lights and the next minute obscuring them. We're doing all simultaneously in perfect balance. And the sign of that perfect balance is Mercury. And Mercury, the Roman, is the Greek Hermes, which is the Tecuti of the Egyptian, which is the Messiah of the Hebrew. The perfect balance of all powers simultaneously co-held together. Does it sound like hard work to get it? Only for one reason, inertia. We've got habits. Habits of body, habits of emotional attitude, habits of time thinking, mentation, habits of conceptual adherence, like I'm a jurist, I'm a non-jurist. But no habits of free initiative, because you can't have a habit of that. For that one, you have to gather yourself together and design. How does it feel? I'll let you go away and think about it. Thank you for listening to the Eugene Halliday Podcast. Please subscribe to receive notifications of future episodes.